0: Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host Tim Patrick, and this is episode 84, October 24th to October 30th, 1862. Last week we talked about continued action in Oklahoma in the Battle of Old Fort Wayne. We also talked about the incident at Palmyra in Missouri, Finally, we wrapped up with a discussion on the significance of the Battle of Antietam. This week, we will have similar talks about the Battles of Corinth and Perryville. We are going to have a small but significant skirmish at Island Mound in Missouri, but before we do that, we need to head to Louisiana for the Battle of Georgia Landing. Before we head to Louisiana, though, I do want to mention that We are going to be rolling out some new Patreon content. Hard to believe we're already here at the end of October, but November, of course, right around the corner. We're going to go back to a memoir review. This one is going to be Hardtack and Coffee. And the unique part of this particular memoir is that it talks exclusively, almost, about camp life and how soldiers lived. So it's a little bit of a different type of memoir compared to some of the other ones that we have talked about that are either pretty heavily focused on the combat experience or there are also those who are more focused on the soldiers' life, but they do not really go as much into detail as Hardtack and Coffee does as we will see. So if that sounds like something that will interest you, that is going to be posted here in November on the Patreon. On October 27th, we have a skirmish at Georgia Landing in Louisiana near Labadieville. When last we were in Louisiana, we had Benjamin Butler, who was busy occupying New Orleans. A confederate strike at Baton Rouge was avoided by the superiority of the federal navy. Butler would wish to solidify his position in Louisiana, sending his protege Godfrey Weitzel with around 4,000 men on an expedition to the whereabouts of Labadeeville. Weitzel was the son of German immigrants who had settled in Cincinnati. He had served as an engineer, and had already served in that capacity on the staff of Butler's army, a position he will hold again during the latter stages of the war. After the end of hostilities, he will remain in the army for a time before retiring to pursue a career in engineering. Weitzel actually will build a canal in Michigan, probably his biggest contribution. In 1862, Weitzel would be up against approximately 1,300 men in the form of Alfred Mouton. Mouton was a Louisiana native and graduate of West Point. The son of a former governor and French speaker, Mouton will go on to serve under Richard Taylor until his death in 1864. He will have with him in October of 1862 the Crescent Regiment along with some other scattered units. They would be set up near Labadeeville at a place called Georgia Landing. Whitesell would move out, his destination, a town called Thibodeau. I've seen it mentioned that Butler was also corrupt and wished to secure sugar and cotton of this region, possibly for personal profit. We are going to see northern agents wishing to come down into the federal-occupied areas of the south in order to turn a profit off, say, sugar and cotton, and it is certainly going to open the door for potential corruption. On October 27th, the two sides would begin skirmishing. Whitesall would make use of a floating bridge to assault the rebels and push them back. But why should I tell you when we can hear the official report from Weitzel himself? Here we have the battle report that was submitted by Weitzel. At 11 o'clock, when I was about two miles above Labadeeville, I received the report that the enemy was in force about a mile ahead, on the left bank, and they had six pieces of artillery. I immediately ordered up four pieces of Caress battery. Two pieces were with the rear guard, and Thompson's was already ahead, and formed the 13th Connecticut, and 75th New York in line of battle to support Thompson. These two regiments formed splendidly and moved at once forward to the attack through a dense cane field. I moved on with them, and after emerging from the cane field, I received the report, which was that the enemy was in position on the right bank also, and that he had four pieces of artillery on that side. At the same time, I received the report that the enemy's cavalry was in the rear of my rear guard. I immediately swung my brigade across the bayou, ordering eight companies of the 12th Connecticut over to support the 8th New Hampshire, leaving two companies of this regiment, one section of Carruth's battery, and Williamson's cavalry to guard the rear. I immediately ordered also that a road be cut up the steep bank on both sides of the bayou for the passage of artillery and my train. I found soon that the enemy on the left bank, after delivering only the fire of its advance guard, which killed one of my cavalry and wounded another and killed two horses, had disappeared for some unaccountable reason. Fearing some ruse, I immediately ordered the 13th Connecticut across the bayou to support the 8th New Hampshire and the 12th Connecticut. Thompson's battery to play upon the enemy's artillery on the right bank, which was firing splendidly upon our forces and my bridge. Ordered Carruth to cross over with his two advanced sections and the 75th New York to support Thompson and guard the head of the bridge and the front of the train. I then crossed over, ordered the 8th New Hampshire to form line of battle across the road, the 12th Connecticut to form at its right, and ordered these forward to attack at once. They had scarcely commenced moving when the 13th Connecticut arrived, On a double quick from across the bayou. I immediately ordered this in reserve. Subsequently, as the center guides of the 8th New Hampshire and 12th Connecticut moved in different lines of direction, they became sufficiently separated to allow me to throw the 13th Connecticut on the line between the two. I ordered this regiment forward in line of battle. The line thus formed advanced steadily at my command forward. In a very short time, the enemy's battery retreated, and also the infantry support. The fight did not last long. I found that the enemy had four pieces of artillery in the road. It was Connor's battery, Company A, Withers Light Artillery, commanded by Captain G. Ralston, who was wounded and is now a paroled prisoner. This battery, supported by remnants of the 18th Louisiana and the Crescent City Regiments, numbering together about 500 men. They were lying down in a ditch on the lower side of a plantation road in the edge of woods at Georgia Landing, and immediately on the left of the battery. Whitesell would go on to speak of the prisoners gathered and the amount of casualties, so we have a pretty good detail on the Battle of Georgia Landing. This action would clear the area of Confederate presence, despite being outnumbered. Federals would lose 18 killed and 86 wounded as compared to 229 Confederates, and an additional 200-some prisoners after the Federals had forced their crossing. On October 29th, we also have the skirmish at Island Mound in Missouri. This battle is significant because it is the first battle which involves a regiment of colored infantry on behalf of the Union in the form of the first Kansas Colored Troops. Now, you may be wondering that 1862 is a little early in the war for there to be such troops, and generally, you would be correct in that assessment. George Lane, the governor of Kansas, was trying to move forward the agenda of the Radical Republicans, so he recruited a unit of escaped slaves, as well as freemen, which became the first Kansas Colored Regiment. The unit had been put together after the official rejection of Lane's proposal arrived from the War Department. Still, the regiment would be unique in that it would have the first African-American officer in Lieutenant Patrick Minor. Captain William Seaman would lead a detachment of these troops to quell potential guerrilla activity in Bates County, Missouri, a little south of Kansas City. Around 240 men would advance on October 27th and make contact with potential Confederate guerrillas and home guard, which numbered some 400. Being outnumbered, breastworks were constructed by the 240 at the residence of a known Confederate guerrilla, or at least, a Confederate sympathizer. This position was known by the Federal troops as Fort Africa. Confederates would place this makeshift fort under siege, their ability to actually assault the position thwarted by the rifles of the Kansans. Remember, the rifled musket gave range superiority, as opposed to the pistols and shotguns the guerrillas were most likely armed with. A brush fire was lit to get the Union men out of their fortified area. With supplies running low, Seaman would send out a detachment of men. This part of the troop were under orders to remain within sight of the main line, but would not do so, being set upon by the guerrillas, which is where the battle's casualties mostly occurred. A second contingent would arrive on the 27th and drive away these guerrillas. The first, Kansas, would suffer eight killed and eleven wounded. Confederate losses were unknown although the Kansans claim to have inflicted some 40-50 to casualties on the enemy. This battle is significant because there were some in the north who believed that blacks would be poor fighters as compared to white troops. Gaining victory in Missouri would potentially squash some of these claims. There are some accounts of the battle that have the action happening at fairly close quarters as well, so... It is even more to the point that these men can stand and fight as opposed to simply run away. In 1863, there would officially be colored troops instituted in the Union Army, but unfortunately, they would only allow for white officers, meaning men like Patrick Minor would have to give up their positions. We have had a good amount of time to watch the dust settle after a very eventful three battles in 1862. After the defeat of the Confederacy at Corinth, it was described as the darkest days for the Southern cause. We talked a little about the significance to the Battle of Antietam, and why the war is essentially lost for the Confederacy after that point. I share in the maybe unpopular opinion that the war is essentially a won and lost in the East. We started during the seven days and then concluded at Antietam. But a large factor, I think, as well, are the two battles out west that happen immediately afterward. Corinth and Perryville happened only a few days apart. Corinth is a clear defeat for the rebels in Mississippi, while Perryville, although a tactical victory, would be seen as a defeat because the campaign effectively ends following the one major battle. Let's first talk about Corinth. Just as this was possibly the high-water mark for the Confederacy in this region, so too it was the high-water mark, effectively, for Earl Van Dorn and Sterling Price. Both of these generals would go on to future commands, but they had lost their star that had once shone brightly. Price would be removed from his beloved Missouri troops and sent further west he's going to be operating out that way for a little while and actually be involved in the largest battle in Missouri in 1864. Van Dorn will command cavalry in an effective raid, which is probably the better use for him as we have continually described. Other than those duties, he's actually going to be waiting around, which allows him to exploit his talent as a womanizer. This does not prove well for Van Dorn, who was confronted by a jealous husband, who argues with the general, seeking a statement from him that would clear the tarnished reputation of his missus. Van Dorn will refuse, resulting in the civilian drawing a derringer and shooting Van Dorn in the head, killing him instantly. But we can go past simply the fortunes of the Confederate officers. Never again will there be a better chance for gains in this region. Forrest will have some success later in the war, but that ship has definitely sailed for truly dislodging the enemy. William Stark Rosecrans would see his fortunes change, being sent to replace Buell shortly afterward. This was probably Grant's worst performance during the war, and yet he will also benefit from the battle being in his sector, regardless of there being a lack of pursuit, allowing for the Confederate army to not be thoroughly destroyed. Over three large battles here in the fall, I would argue that Corinth is the most unfortunate loss of life. As much as we can talk about how Van Dorn is affected following the setback, the battle was very much another attempt for him to gain some glory, much in the same way that Pea Ridge had been. Even if the rebels had managed to push the Federals out of Corinth, they were not looking at any larger scale gains. The rest of Grant's department would have outnumbered them, and Corinth, as we have already mentioned, was not the best place to withstand a siege due to lack of drinking water. Ultimately, the big thing to come out of these battles is that it will force the Confederates to fall back. Grant would then be free to begin his campaigns for Vicksburg, which we will start soon and see their conclusion in 1863. Just as a side note too, even if there is no territorial gain, We kind of mentioned that Van Dorn and Price are looking for these operations to perhaps draw troops away from Kentucky and away from Bragg's invasion of that state. So even if we put their operations in that frame, we can still say that they fail pretty terribly. They do not prevent Union troops from heading to join Buell in Kentucky, and there's no other troops that get diverted from elsewhere because of their actions, so it's another sort of chalk up in the loss column there for Van Dorn and Price. Now we can talk about Perryville. In many ways, Corinth is a good precursor, because it is the result in Mississippi that affects the decision-making of Braxton Bragg. That army defeated, it left his field command as seemingly the only Confederate army to defend further incursions into the southern heartland, Bragg does not have a very good performance during this campaign. Lack of direction and coordination should have alerted the Confederate government that maybe he was not the right guy for the job. But once again, Davis would stick with this guy longer than he should. While longer than Lee's stay in Maryland, it was also not long enough to really garner support from the state of Kentucky. Turnout for the Confederate cause had been disappointing. And perhaps this could have been reversed had the army stayed in the Bluegrass State. That does bring up an interesting thought that was not lost on the southern contemporaries. There is an obvious question, and that is, why does Bragg still have a job after this campaign? Buell does not. He is replaced by Rosecrans, whose combined forces eventually become the Army of the Cumberland. He will be on a collision course with Bragg at Stone's River at the end of 1862 and beginning of 1863. Of the three Confederate assaults in the fall of 1862, Bragg it can be seen, and argued today, as being the most successful. He won a tactical victory against his superior foe and was able to stick around a lot longer in Kentucky. Now, could also be argued that he does not really understand the strategic situation he thinks the main army is somewhere that it's not and he very well could have been destroyed had thomas advanced or charles gilbert used the bulk of his men in an earlier fashion so we should take that also with a grain of salt It did not hurt that any shortcomings were overlooked by his buddy Jefferson Davis, though. No, Bragg would combine his forces to create the Confederate Army of Tennessee, where he is going to command until after Chattanooga in 1863. But what are the takeaways? Kentucky is never going to be threatened as seriously again. Bragg, who already hates Tennessee, will also hate Kentucky from here on out. I have seen it argued, too, that this was the high watermark for any kind of revival of the Southern cause after Shiloh, which I tend to agree with. Earlier in the year, we talked about how Shiloh is the direct response to all of the setbacks that the Confederacy is seeing in this region of the war, and Perryville is really the first opportunity that they get to swing the momentum back and unfortunately for the confederacy they don't have the right guy in charge to do that now it could also be argued that they don't have the right resources to necessarily succeed there is always more of an emphasis on the eastern part of the war that being a little bit closer to richmond and the capital but if bragg had say been able to use all of the troops that he would potentially have at his disposal if Kirby Smith had been with him, if he was able to exploit a potential late breakthrough at Perryville, then things might have turned out a little bit differently. You know, it's it's very similar to Antietam in that the Federal Army does outnumber the enemy. And we saw that Robert E. Lee is able to use all of the terrain and all of the troops at his disposal. He's constantly shifting regiments and brigades around the battlefield. He's using those interior lines to his advantage. So he does a good job of keeping his army intact, which I think is probably the biggest takeaway that you can look at Lee from at Antietam in that... He's able to avoid disaster in several places. He's constantly putting out fires. You notice that in Perryville and Corinth, they're both essentially direct assaults, right? There's no big flanking movement. It's kind of head-on. There's a lack of imagination in their attacks. So I think we can definitely point out there being certain personnel issues in the Confederate army that are going to make it difficult for September and October to go their way, at least in Kentucky and Mississippi. We can go ahead and shut it down right there. This week, we had some continued action in Louisiana at Georgia Landing. Butler is still in charge of the Crescent City, and he is solidifying the Union hold in the southern part of the state. Combine that with the slight gains we talked about along the Texas coast, and the Federals will be in a good spot. We also have the Battle of Island Mound in Missouri. This engagement will be the first battle to involve black troops, although they are not yet officially in federal service. Finally, we concluded with a wrap on the impact and significance of the Battles of Corinth as well as Perryville. We are a little removed, but that's okay. Next week, we'll have some smaller-scale action, but most importantly, we need to officially close the book on the military career of one George B. McClellan. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Your support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.